And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about the betrayal of Judas. So we're starting a new series, and we're slowly but surely going to work our way through the passion of Jesus. In a sense, the last few days, the final weeks of Jesus' life here on earth, and we're going to be building towards the cross and the resurrection on Easter. This morning, we're going to look at Judas and his betrayal. And Judas is perhaps the most vile, wicked, and heinous character in all of Scripture. If you guys think back, do you remember your high school days, maybe your early college days when you took English 101 and you read Dante's Inferno? Anybody remember that? Remember the spark notes? And there were different levels and circles of hell. And where was Judas? Anybody remember? He was in the lowest level of hell, and the only other person in that lowest level was actually Satan himself. You know, last week, Andrew preached about not wasting our lives and being servants and stewards who make the most out of every opportunity and the talents that God has given us. Judas is an example of the exact opposite. Judas is the definition of a wasted life. Someone who wasted three years of discipleship with Jesus. Someone who wasted every opportunity. He is an example of a wasted life. And his name has become synonymous with betrayal. Did you know this? Did you know that you'll find the word betray 40 times in the New Testament? And every time that word appears, guess what? Judas's name is in that exact same verse. We're going to look at Judas's betrayal this morning. But after he betrays Jesus, he actually decides he's wrought with guilt and conviction. And the only thing he knows to do is to actually end his life by hanging himself. And after Judas meets his demise, we never hear from him again. He completely disappears from the pages of Scripture. So you might be thinking to yourself, I've never heard a sermon on Judas. I've never preached a sermon on Judas. But I'm betting that this sermon is for the really sinful people, right? The rule breakers, the rebels, the externally sinful people. But here's the kicker. Judas was what? He was a disciple of Jesus. He was amongst the inner circle. He was a friend of Jesus. He was actually in ministry. Some would say he was a deacon, a leader, an officer in the early church. So I hope that this sermon is interesting for everyone, but this sermon is actually particularly addressed to the church attenders, to the small group participants, the disciple makers, the leaders, and those engaged in ministry. The story of Judas gives us an example. It gives us a warning uh, for those in ministry. So we're going to have a couple points this morning. The first is this. We're going to look at betrayal in Judas, and then we're going to look at the betrayal in us. So if you guys could, you're actually going to need your Bibles this morning. We're going to be in Mark 14. I'm going to read first Mark 14, 1 through 11. So if you could read with me. It says this, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that's Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar for the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, 
Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She she has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So first, let's look at the betrayal in Judas. And let me give you a little context, if you guys picked up on this. It's the week of Passover. In fact, in chapter 14, verse 1, it says that it is two days before the Passover and feast of unleavened bread. Now, here's what you need to know about the Passover. This was the most important feast and festival in national history for all Israelites and Hebrews. This would almost be like a combination of July 4th and Christmas. And here's what the Israelites celebrated. They celebrated being delivered, being freed from Egypt. So think back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus, when the people of Israel are enslaved to Egypt. If you guys remember, God, through a series of of 10 consecutive plagues, uses Moses to bring Israel from being enslaved by Pharaoh and an evil nation, a superpower of Egypt, and he leads them out of Egypt to the promised land. Y'all remember that story? And that's what the Israelites would remember and celebrate during the Passover meal. And then you fast forward to Jesus and what we're reading right here in Mark 14. Once again, the Hebrews are enslaved. But this time, they're not enslaved to Egypt, but to who? To Rome. And Rome is a superpower. And so you can just imagine as these people are celebrating and meditating and thinking about deliverance, right? There's rebellion in the air. This is a season of political unrest. And they're thinking maybe, just maybe, there might be a leader, a savior, or a messiah, similar to Moses, who could free us not from Egypt, but from Roman control. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus might be that leader. And so that's where the story picks up. And if you were to look at Jesus' calendar, if you could look, you know, pull out his iPhone and check how did he spend this week, here's what his calendar would say on Monday. He enters into Jerusalem, and we call that the triumphal entry. Y'all remember this story? Jesus is riding on a colt. The people gather, and as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, they're throwing down palm branches, and they're throwing their garments and cloaks on the ground, and they're screaming out what? Do y'all remember? They're saying, Hosanna, which means praise be to God. That's what happens on Monday. Then on Tuesday, Jesus kicks the door down and breaks into the temple, and what does he do? He cleans it out, and he gets rid of the money changers and the merchants and the lenders, and he drives them out. Then on Wednesday, now that the temple is clean and clear and nice and quiet, Jesus takes the day and he preaches and he teaches, and where this story picks up, it's Thursday. It's two days before the Passover meal. Let's talk about who Judas is. All right, the name Judas is very similar to Judah. Y'all get that? And what the name means, it means two things. It means first, God leads, 
And second, object of praise. So we're focusing on Judas, and he's got a name that means God, excuse me, that means God leads, an object of praise. And this is a paradox, right? Because on one hand, his name name means God leads, but he is not led by God. He's led by who? He's led by Satan. And his name means object of praise. And there was no one more unfit for praise and worship and glory than who? Than Judas. But his second name is what? Iscariot. And Iscariot combines two words, ish and carry off. Okay, Ish and Kerioth. Ish means from, and Kerioth was a town. So we got Judas from the town of Kerioth. Now here's what's interesting about Judas. He, he is the only disciple, so he is the only one of the 12 who was not from Galilee. Galilee was the north. Judas was from the south. Now what does that mean? Does he, does he like fried chicken and sweet tea and college football? Well, it means he was just a little different than the rest of the 12. These guys were coworkers, they were brothers, they were friends, they were family members. Judas probably early on felt a little bit like an outsider because he was from the south rather than the north. But here's what we do know about Judas. He was devout, he was patriotic, and he was a zealous Jew. And in fact, Judas had a very particular role amongst the disciples. He had a job description. He had a position. He was, a, he was an executive amongst the 12. Does anybody know his job? He was the what? He was the treasurer. There you go. So I don't know why Judas was picked to be treasurer. Maybe they went out to eat, and Judas was the one friend who was good at like calculating how much to tip the, the waiter. You know, maybe he was good at splitting up the ticket really well. Maybe he, he, he did great with spreadsheets and Excel documents. He knew how to bargain. But we do know this. Judas had an, in, an, an interest. He had an aptitude when it came to money. But here's what's really interesting. Judas was in charge of the money bag. So what does that tell you about the other disciples' perception of him? They trusted him because they gave him all the money. This tells me that Judas was a fantastic hypocrite. He concealed it. No one suspected that he was going to betray Jesus. And so Judas, more than likely, he hung around the outside. He was a part of the 12, but he had no intimacy with Jesus. And here's what, as we piece together how Judas viewed Jesus, here's what we understand. That he viewed Jesus as a Messiah. The Messiah simply means Savior. It means anointed one. It means leader. But Judas had the wrong impression of what type of Messiah Jesus would be. Judas was under the impression that Jesus was going to be a political Messiah. He he was going to be a physical Messiah, and that Jesus' primary purpose was to overthrow Rome, and that Jesus was going to set up an earthly kingdom, and he's going to restore all power to the Israelites. And Judas was hoping at the very end that he could get in on that prosperity and that glory when Jesus took control. Does that make sense? That's what Judas understood. So do you see how Judas views Jesus? He views him as a means to an end. He was attracted to Jesus, but he never loves Jesus. In fact, if you piece together from all the different gospel accounts, you'll see that there was never one moment where Judas 
love Jesus. In fact, from day one, what does Judas love? He loves money. He loves power. Do you know that in all the gospel accounts, Judas only speaks up one time? And did you know you just read it? It's actually right here in Mark 14 where Mary, that's the woman, all right, comes to Jesus and she breaks open a bottle of ointment and perfume. And it's, it's extremely priceless and valuable. And she cleans Jesus' feet. She wipes his feet with her hair. And somebody speaks up and says what? Somebody gripes, somebody complains, somebody moans and says, we could have used that money to serve the poor. Well, guess who's speaking up right there? For the first time in the gospel accounts, it's who? It's actually Judas. Well, why does Judas speak up? Is it because he loves the poor and he's philanthropic and merciful or generous? You want to know why Judas finally speaks up? It's not because he loves the poor. It's because he loves money. And Judas hang on to, hung on to the money bag. And what other gospel accounts suggest is that Judas was stealing or pilfering from the money bag. And so Judas wants more to himself. And in fact, when the moment finally does come, Judas sells Jesus for what? For silver, for money, for 30 pieces. Judas loved money. And this is really what the word betrayal means. The, the biblical definition of what it means to betray somebody, it means this, to hand over or to set up. In fact, when Scripture describes betrayal, it's not an external act. It's not necessarily something you do. It's a sin of motivation. The Bible actually describes betrayal as an internal sin. And so that's what's going on in Judas's life right now. He's finally reached a moment where Jesus Christ is no longer useful. And so for the past three years, Judas has been following Jesus and just hoping that one day Jesus would, would, would take power, take control of the country, and he would benefit. And here's what Judas is finally realizing, that I've wasted three years. Do you get that? That this has been a waste of my time, that he is not a political savior. So just in the same way that a stockbroker dumps his stock the moment it's not producing, in the same way maybe ladies, you get rid of a sweater or a dress the moment it's no longer in style, Maybe you guys who filled out a bracket this week, the moment you trash your bracket because it gets busted by an under, underdog and Cinderella team, do you see what Judas is doing? He is just kicking Jesus to the curb because he's no longer useful. There's, there's no benefit. There's no worth. There's no value. He realizes, I've got no use for Jesus Christ. And I got to get out while I'm ahead. And so what do we see in verse 10 is that Judas actually initiates this plot. Verse 10 says that Judas goes over to the chief priest to discuss, to deliberate, how can he betray Jesus? So that's where we see betrayal in Judas. Well, next, point number two, let's see the betrayal in us. If you guys could read with me, I'm going to read verses 12 through 25. 12 through 25, and it says this, On the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. 
And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large number of room, a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the 12 and they were reclining at a table eating. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him and one another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written. But woe to that man to whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And they were eating and he took the bread and blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he, had, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So Jesus brings the disciples together, and they celebrate the Passover meal, what we would identify as the Last Supper and how we celebrate communion. And Jesus looks out at these 12 men, and he says, one of you is going to betray me. Now, there's a game we like to play in campus outreach with our students. Our community group played it one night. We called it Mafia. Anybody ever played Mafia? And here's how the game works. You get a big circle of people. And you close your eyes and you identify a couple people to be the mafia, one guy to be a police officer, and one person to be a nurse. And you close your eyes and slowly but surely the mafia work together and they try to pick off the townspeople. And in between every turn, you guys know, or you try to figure out who's the mafia. And you try to put them on trial and get rid of them. And here's the thing, at some point in every game of mafia, it gets really heated, really dramatic, and usually it's like the outspoken young guy points across the room, he's like, this guy's in the mafia, right? It's Brett, it's Steve, it's Joe, I know, right? Because he said this, or he winked, or his voice went up, I know he's in the mafia. Well, if you read this story, Jesus would be a really bad mafia player. Because what does Jesus say? He's like, I think it's one of you guys. It's one of the 12. It's maybe one of you. I mean, if a Hollywood producer or director was filming this scene, it wouldn't play out this way. There would be this dramatic moment where Jesus looks across the table. There's an extreme close-up, and he says, Judas is the betrayer. But that's not what happens. Jesus is indirect. He just says, one of you will betray me. Well, why does Jesus say it this way? Why is Jesus not specific? I believe Jesus is being purposely ambiguous. And I'm going to give you two reasons. One now and one later. And the first reason is this. is because Jesus is calling the disciples and you and me to check our hearts. Jesus is calling the disciples and you and me to check our hearts. Do you see how the disciples respond? They say, is it I? Can it be me? And if you go to the original language, here's what the disciples are saying. They're saying, is it me? Maybe me? Could it be me? Could I betray Jesus? 
And the point Jesus is trying to make is that we all have a little Judas in us. We all have a little Judas in us. We are capable of subtle betrayal. Let's get, get real deep just for a second. Let's look at the structure. This is why I said you need your Bible. Let's look at the structure of this passage. If you start in verse 10, you'll see that the passage starts with a focus on who? On? Help me out. Judas. Okay, so the beginning, the passage focuses on Judas. Now let's go to the end of the passage. If you go all the way to verse 50, all the way to verse 50, the passage ends focusing on who? Help me out. The disciples. Verse 50 says this, they all left him and fled. Now isn't that interesting? The beginning of the passage is, passage starts with Judas and his betrayal, but in the end, we get all, all 12 disciples and they all what? And they all flee, and in the middle we get what? We get the Passover. We get the Lord's Supper. We get the communion meal. Do you understand what Mark, the author, is trying to communicate? What Jesus is trying to suggest? He's saying that your sin demands my death. In a sense, what Mark is trying to answer right here is the question, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why did Jesus have to give up his body? Why did Jesus have to pour out his blood? And the answer is the middle of this passage. It's because of the sin of you and me, the sin of Jesus' disciples, his followers. See, very often when we think about the table and the Lord's Supper and the reason why Jesus had to die, we think about the sin out there, don't we? The sin in the city, the sin on the campus, the sin of our culture, for the evil people in Hollywood and Washington, D.C. But do you see what Jesus is saying? The reason why I had to die is because of the sin in here, within this church, and within your heart. You see, every time we participate in the Lord's Supper, Jesus is reminding us that your sin required my sacrifice. Every time we approach the table, it's as if Jesus is declaring, you're the main culprit. You made me do this. You forced me to die on the cross. So do you see what Jesus is calling out of his disciples? Do you see what Jesus is calling this church to do? He's saying, confess. Confess your sins. And this is really what changed my... my this is really the, the big takeaway I had in preparing for this sermon. Is that very often when I confess my sin, I confess the things I've committed but do you see what Jesus is saying? Don't just confess the sins you commit. Confess the sins you're capable of. Jesus is saying, don't just repent of the things you've done. Repent of the things that you could do. Not just your past, but the sins you're that you could potentially do. So once again, we all have some Judas in us. We all serve Jesus for something else. We all approach Jesus, treat Jesus as a means to an end. And it could be a variety of different things. You might follow Jesus because you want to have a sterling reputation so that you could have social approval. You could have a good life, a stable family. Maybe so you could overcome a certain addiction or issue in your life. Very often we give Jesus and God certain deadlines. We, we, we hope, we desire, we expect God to work on a certain timeline. So I want to be into my career by the age of 25. I want to be married by the age of 30. 
I want two kids by the age of 35, and I want to be financially stable by the time I'm 50. Sometimes we say, God, i got to graduate in five years. You've got to remove this depression or this anxiety or this addiction in six months or one year. And very often when we don't get these blessings or don't receive them according to our timeline, we get frustrated and we get irritated and we get angry and we get mad. And you know what that is? It's just subtle betrayal. It's just betrayal. It's just revealing that we've got a little Judas deep down in our hearts. And so here's what this story is reminding us, is that under the right circumstances and with the right opportunity, we are capable of great evil. Even you and me, we are capable of walking away from Jesus Christ. And so here's the question. If betrayal is a a sin of motivation, if it's internal, how can I know if I have it? How, How can I know if it's lurking deep down in my heart? Because keep in mind, the disciples didn't suspect Jesus. So here's the dirty secret about this sin. The only thing that can reveal the heart of Jesus is what? Anybody want to guess? When things go what? When things go bad. When things go wrong. There's almost no way to, there's almost no way to know apart from hardship. See, it's almost like when we face adversity, when we face loss and hardship in our life, it's almost like God is asking us this question as you experience loss. Are you here for me to serve you? Or are you following me because you want to serve me? I don't think I was very clear right there, but when you're facing hardship and suffering, it's almost as if God is asking you, Do you want me to serve you? Are you here to serve me? So I think there's a reason why before the Lord's Supper, Mark launches into a story about Mary anointing Jesus' feet. Because Mark is setting up a contrast between Mary and Judas. So in Mary, Mary, we find a woman who, who breaks open this bottle of expensive ointment, and she uses her hair in this extravagant, spontaneous moment of worship of Jesus. Don't you see the contrast? Do you see Mary and her love? It's spontaneous. And Judas is what? He's very calculated. Mary views Jesus as an ends in himself. But Judas views Jesus as a means to an end. Mary worships Jesus because he's beautiful. Judas follows Jesus because he's useful. As I read this, I thought, I, I thought about my approach to reading and to books. Okay? So I grew up in a family where we didn't eat out a lot, okay? There was like no sugar, no processed food, no eating at restaurants. And when you're in middle school, high school, your favorite food is what, kids? What's your favorite food? It's what? It's pizza, am I right? And so I, 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 I never got to go to Papa John's. I never got to go to Pizza Hut. never got to eat the good stuff at Domino's. And so I developed a plan. Because in middle school, in elementary school, we had this reading program where with every book you read, all right, you got a personal pizza from Pizza Hut. Y'all remember, do they still do that program? Okay, you get little stickers. You put it on the, on the pen. Okay, and I think every five books, you got a personal pan pizza, which is about the size of a bread plate, and they strategically place about four pepperonis on it. But, but I was in, all right? That's my only way to get pizza. 
And, and by the way, my mom's an incredible cook. She's going to listen to this sermon later. Okay, she's a great cook. And looking back on it, her food is better than Pizza Hut. But, all right, in elementary, you don't realize that. And so, guys, I started just crushing books, okay? I grew up in the city of Nashville, and I read so many books that at the end of the year, okay, they recognized me as a top five reader in all of Nashville, okay? And I got an award from the mayor himself at, like, the downtown Parthenon, okay, because I read so many books. Now, why did I read books? I went through the whole Hardy Boys series. Why? Because I love fiction? No, because I love pizza, Okay, And books were a means to an end. They were a way for me to get more pizza. I approached reading like Judas. Do you see that? Books were a means to an end. But today, I read more than I've ever read. Not because I have to. Not for pizza, but because I want to. All right? The books, the biographies, the fictions, the stories. They develop me. They challenge me. They engross me. I read like Mary just because I want to, just because I love to. It's a spontaneous sacrifice. So I want to show you a quick, um, quick picture right here. You guys know me. I'm a very cultured, artistic individual. <laughs> All right, don't laugh. But this is a painting. I, I, want, I want to make sure you guys get your money's worth. I know we got a lot of smart, intelligent people in the room. So this is actually a picture, okay? It's a painting called The Taking of Christ. Does anybody know the painter? Oh, wow, we got it. Caravaggio. Okay, this was an Italian painter. If you see right here, Caravaggio is depicting the betrayal of Jesus. So you see right here in the center, we've got Jesus, and Judas is betraying Jesus with a kiss. And here's what's really interesting. Did you know that Caravaggio, the painter, actually painted himself into this portrait? He's actually in the top right corner, and he's holding a lamp. You see that? But here's what's interesting about this portrait. What is front and center? Is it Jesus and Judas? What's in the very middle of the painting? It's what? It's the soldier. And the soldier is wearing this shining, glimmering armor. And there's a reason for that. Because here's what Caravaggio was intending to do with this painting. He's holding the light, and it's reflecting off the armor. And here's what he intended to accomplish with this painting. He's saying there's a reflection in this armor. As you stare into this armor, you should see yourself. And here's what the painter is saying. He's saying, just like Judas, we're capable of betrayal. Just like Judas, we will walk away from Jesus. Just like Judas, we're capable of subtle betrayal. Look, if you're here this morning, you want to follow Jesus. The question that that Caravaggio and Jesus is asking, why do you want to follow Jesus? Are you doing it because you love Jesus like Mary, or is Jesus a means to an end like Judas? And this only becomes clear in hard times. That's the betrayal in us. Okay, next point is this. What can we learn from Jesus? How does Jesus deal with betrayal? How does he respond to it? We're going to focus in on this Passover meal, this Last Supper. And here's typically how the Last Supper or the, how the Passover meal worked. First off, it was just for your family, just loved ones. And so Jesus decides to eat this meal with his disciples and even Judas. So here we see just Jesus inviting Judas to participate in this, in this meal. He's saying, Judas, you're my guest. You're my family member. I love you unconditionally. 
And very often when we think about the last summer, we think about another painting, right? This one right here. Okay, let's go to the next, next slide. Yeah, you guys have seen this one, right? This is Da Vinci. But this is not how, how, how the Lord's Supper worked, okay? Because they weren't all sitting on one side of the table. They weren't like middle schoolers on a date. Okay, Jesus and his disciples were not same side sitters. They sat all around a table. And more than likely, here's how the seating chart worked. Jesus sat in the middle because he was the host, and on his left was, guess who? Judas. And, and that was actually a sign of honor, that Judas was an honored guest at this supper. And then on the right was John. That was another sign of respect. And verse, remember, Jesus says, one of you, as he points out to this table, will, will betray me. Now, more than likely, they would sit, they would recline, I'm not going to act it out for you, but on their side. So they'd have one arm down on the ground, and they'd eat with the other arm. And in verse 20, it says this. Jesus says, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping the bread into the dish with me. Now, more than likely, Jesus did not say this out loud. He didn't announce it or proclaim it. More than likely, as he's laying on his side, he just turns over and whispers into the ear of John, who is sitting on his right. And so what Jesus says is, the one person who takes the last piece of bread, that's who's going to betray me. He doesn't announce it. He whispers it to John. Now, the piece of bread that Jesus is describing is called the sop. Doesn't that sound good? You want to know what the sop was? It was the last piece of bread. And they had this big bowl, and it's full of oil and dates and nuts and dried fruit. And the sop was the last piece of bread. So think about almost like uh, fruitcake, right, that you throw away when you get it for Christmas. All right, this was a delicacy in ancient Israel. It was jam-soaked bread. And whoever got the sop was the most honored guest at the meal. So I was trying to think of like a modern-day equivalent. It's when you and your buddies, you go eat a bunch of wings, right? And everybody's looking at that last wing. Whoever gets the last wing, right, that's the honored guest. When you're grilling out, whoever gets the biggest burger, you know, that one nacho that's connected to all the others <laughs> and has the most cheese on it. That's what we're talking about right here. And Jesus says, whoever eats the sop, that's who will betray me. And Jesus hands it to who? He hands it to Judas. But do you see the honor, the respect, the courtesy that Jesus shows Jesus? And I told you earlier, there's two reasons. There's two reasons why God doesn't say it's Judas, why Jesus doesn't just call him out. One is because he wants us to check our hearts. But the second is he desires for Judas to repent. He wants Judas to repent. Do you see what Jesus is acting out? He's acting out 2 Peter 3, 9, that God is patient and he wishes that none should perish, but all should reach repentance. Do you see the patience of Jesus? Even to his final days, he's pleading. He's wooing. He's, he's trying to draw Judas into repentance. He's not trying to condemn Judas. He's just trying to convict him. He's trying to melt him rather, rather than shatter him. Do you see what Jesus is acting out? He's saying, Judas, look, I'm giving you the sop. You get the last piece of bread, but in less than 24 hours, I'm about to give you my what? My body. And here's what's interesting. Do you know in this Mark passage, but every gospel account of the Passover meal, do you know what not, is not mentioned? What, what was the main course for the Passover meal? It was what? It wasn't bread. It was 
the lamb. Did you know that the lamb is never mentioned in any gospel account? And it's not because Jesus is going vegetarian in his final days. It's because Jesus is the lamb. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, people say things like this. Look, there's the lamb that will take away the sin of the world. So do you understand what Mark is saying? He's saying the lamb is here, but the lamb's not on the table. The lamb is sitting at the table. See, Jesus is offering forgiveness to Judas moments before his betrayal. And so if Jesus is willing to offer forgiveness to Judas, do you think he can offer forgiveness to you? It doesn't matter what you've done, what you've said, what's happened in your past, what's been done to you. If Jesus can offer forgiveness and grace and mercy to Judas, he can offer it to you. But Judas doesn't take it. He doesn't receive this grace. In fact, he leaves. And at this point, it's probably midnight. It's pitch black, and Judas walks into the darkness. And let's see what happens next. This is, uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 43. This is where we'll end. It says this, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve with him, a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by, by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against, against as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. So what does Judas do next? He leaves the meal, and he goes straight to the high priest, and he sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Do you know that in today's like modern currency, that's 10 or $20. That's it. And that was the price of a slave in the ancient Near East. But do you see what that says about Judas? What did Judas think about the worth and value of Jesus? He thought he was worthless. Judas, Ju, Judas said, Jesus, you're basically worth a Sunday lunch, 10 or $20. And Judas gathers a crowd. He gathers men with swords and with clubs. He gets the Romans and the Jews. He gets Roman soldiers. Other gospel accounts said that he got a cohort of soldiers. That's about 6,000 soldiers. And guess what they were holding? Swords. But then he goes to the temple and he gets the temple police because they were the ones who would hold clubs. And the reason why Judas gets so many men, what do you think he's expecting when they go to get Jesus? He's expecting what? A fight, a battle royale in the garden. And so Jesus, Jesus, Judas approaches Jesus and he what? He kisses him on the cheek. And there's a reason for that. Kissing was very symbolic back in these times. If you were a slave, you'd kiss your master on the feet. If you were an inferior, you'd kiss somebody on the hand. But if you're equals, you'd kiss them on the cheek. And here's what we know about this word kiss. It's not just a one-time peck on the cheek. This isn't what your son gives you before he goes to bed. This is repeated. It's emphatic. Over and over again, Judas is breaking down and covering the cheek of Jesus with kisses. 
Now think about what a kiss represents. It represents intimacy, affection, tenderness. So don't you see that, 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 that having affection for Jesus does not prove your love for Jesus? You can be near Jesus. You can be kissing Jesus and have no love for Jesus. Have you ever heard the expression, kiss of death? This is where we get it from. Right here, Jesus delivers, excuse me, Judas delivers the kiss of death. So even though Judas is in the presence of Jesus, he is filled with hatred and he's filled with Satan. And over the next couple weeks, we're going to be looking at the passion and how this story unfolds. And it is brutal. I mean, you're going to read about how the crowds hated Jesus and how Pilate was a coward towards Jesus and how Peter denies Jesus and how the soldiers were brutal. But as I read this story, to me, the most gut-wrenching moment, the hardest moment is the betrayal of a disciple. That's a unique emotional, spiritual pain. And do you notice how Jesus responds? Do you know what Jesus says to him after he kisses him over and over again? He calls him what? He calls him friend. Jesus looks at his betrayer and says, friend, what are you doing? Betraying the Son of Man with a kiss. So do you see? Judas goes into the garden expecting a fight, a battle, and a war. And Jesus responds with grace and sacrifice. Judas offers up the kiss of death. And Jesus responds and calls him friend. Do you see how Jesus is trying to seek out the repentance, the confession of his betrayer? It's almost like Jesus is pleading with Judas and he's saying, Look, Judas, it's not too late. I'll be your sacrifice. It doesn't matter what you've done. I'm willing to be your lamb, to be your sacrifice. Not only will I take away the sin of the world, but I'm even willing to take away your sin, Judas, if you will confess, if you will repent, if you will trust in me. We see that Jesus longs for the repentance of his betrayer. Last point. If that's what we can learn from Jesus, what can we learn from Judas? I told you earlier, this is a cautionary tale. And there's some lessons we can learn from Judas. Let me give you four points, practical applications. The first is this, is that God is sovereign over all human evil. Application number one, God is sovereign over all human evil. We like to emphasize the sovereignty of God in this church. We talk about how God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He has wisdom. He's always good. That God is in control of all things. You do realize the all things includes human sinfulness, selfishness, and even betrayal. And look, this is a little bit of a mystery. It's a paradox. Because is Judas responsible for his disobedience? Is he culpable for his betrayal? Yes, absolutely. But at the same time, was it part of God's plan for Judas to betray Jesus? Yes, absolutely. In fact, this very betrayal was prophesied in great detail. If you read Zechariah eleven twelve, it actually prophesies that Judas, excuse me, that Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. If you read Psalm 41, 9, it says this, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So the point is this. Whatever human evil you may encounter, it could be on the news, 
It could be in your own life. It could be in your family. It could be amongst your friends. Whatever evil you may experience, you can rest and know that God is still sovereign, that he's still in control. He's not sleeping at the wheel. He is sovereign over all evil. Point number two, another application. We got to beware the love of money. Beware the love of money. You know, Jesus tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. Here, we just read a story of a man selling out the God of the universe for what? For 20 bucks, a trip to the movies. Now, very often when we think about greed and the love of money, we think it only applies to the super rich, to the wealthy, to the 1%. But was Judas extremely rich? No, he wasn't. He wasn't. Greed applies to the rich, to the middle class, and even the poor. But in Judas's life, we see how far greed can take a man. It leads to his destruction and his damnation. We have to beware the love of money. Point number three, application number three, is that accountability is not automatic. Accountability is not automatic. Judas was in a small group. Judas had 11 accountability partners. Judas was not an occasional church attender. He was in ministry. He was teaching. He was leading. He was performing miracles. Now keep in mind, he was from a different part of the country, and maybe he felt like an outsider with these other disciples who were friends and coworkers and brothers. But here's the thing about accountability. You can't wait for it. You got to initiate it. You got to seek it out. I've talked to many men who attend church each and every week who participate in community groups who are not experiencing real accountability. You got to force it. You got to make it happen. This story reminds me of Hebrews 3:12 which says this, "Take care brothers, lest there be any evil in you, an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God." Exhort one another every day as long as is it called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why does Judas fall away from the living God? Why was his heart hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Because he didn't seek out accountability and confess his sin. All right? Just being a church attender, even in this church, does not make you automatically accountable. And last point is this. If you're a leader, you will face betrayal. If you're a leader, you will face betrayal. This applies to parents, disciple makers, ministry leaders, and friends. If you're in any sort of leadership position, if you've walked with Jesus for an extended amount of time, you will experience betrayal. I've got a pastor friend who's fond of saying, at some point you will serve with a Judas and a Peter. Meaning, not if, but when, it's only a matter of time before you experience denial, desertion, or betrayal. Now think about it this way. Like on our campus at the end of the semester, very often you fill out uh, teacher uh, evaluations. And you get to evaluate your professor and their teaching and communication and leadership. If we gave Jesus a discipleship evaluation, what bubble do you think we'd check? Okay, Like weak, poor, below average, satisfactory. What do you think we'd check? 
average. We check the perfect circle, right? Jesus was a perfect leader, perfect disciple maker. And yet, one of his disciples betrayed him. One of them deserted him. And it says right here in verse 40 that they all fled. Jesus was a perfect leader, perfect disciple maker. You can do everything right as a small group leader. You can do everything right in your community group. You can do everything right as a parent, and guess what? Your sons, your daughters, your disciples, your followers might, if, will fall away. And this is one of the most painful parts about ministry, okay? And I've been in ministry just long enough to experience this several times. And there's a unique, special pain that comes from men and women that you've invested your life, your time, your energy into walking away from you, deserting the faith, betraying you. It's one of the hardest parts about discipleship. It's one of the most challenging aspects of ministry and parenting And what this passage reminds us is that Jesus is our great high priest. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus has been tempted, but also tried in every way. And so he sympathizes with our weakness. So here's what you need to know. For those of you who are experiencing betrayal, for those of you who will experience betrayal in parenting, in discipleship, in ministry, in leadership, is that Jesus sympathizes. Jesus knows what it feels like. Jesus understands that unique pain that you're going through, and he can handle it, and you can take it to him. So what does this story tell us? The life of Judas, the demise of Judas, is that we are capable of great sin, even betrayal, walking out on Jesus. But this story also reminds us that Jesus is not only capable, Jesus has died for great sinners, And he can sympathize with you if you are being betrayed. And he can also forgive you if you have betrayed him. So to the betrayer in the room, Jesus says, I forgive you. And to those who are being betrayed, Jesus says, I can sympathize. I can take your pain. Let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this cautionary tale of a church attender, a ministry leader, of someone who is amongst the 12. Lord, I pray that we would all realize that we are capable of betrayal and walking away from you. God, I pray that we would examine our motives, examine our hearts, and ask ourselves, why do we follow you? Why do we obey? Are you a means to an end, or are you you the end? Lord, I also pray for those of us in leadership and ministry who are experiencing hardships and desertion and betrayal, Lord, I pray that we would take that pain to you. You are a great high priest. You can sympathize. You can identify with our weakness. You're not removed. You're not cut off. Cut off. You're not stoic. You know exactly what it feels like. I pray that we would take that pain to you and that you would give us the courage and the presence that we need to persevere. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.